A long married couple, shelter in place. From the Arc of Empathy.com, it's episode two of Empathy, a podcast. Our podcasts are about empathy in today's world and throughout history. I'm Todd Price here again with Kenan Heiss. Hi, Kenan. Hi, how are you doing, everybody? Good. I, I have to say that empathy starts by listening to one another, by responding with care. Indeed, it does. Hopefully, we're uh, going to exemplify that a little bit here today. Uh, I, I have to say, after this is probably, what, our third or fourth try to get this second episode in with many tef- technical difficulties, uh, and uh, maybe we should explain why that is. First of all, we, we have a, a, a very special guest this week, uh, with along with you, Kenan, who I will have you introduce shortly. But uh, first, let's talk about what's happened since our first episode, which was almost, or maybe it's long, more than three months ago at at this point. So we we had that first episode together in my uh, sunroom, two floors above where you're sitting now. And uh, what happened since then? Well, what has happened since then, it's the, issue, the issues that have, have arisen because of uh, the uh, coronavirus, and then by the murder of George Floyd. And yes. people are very much uh, almost to the person in this country involved with these. Yeah, yes. So we're kind of uh, at a pretty important moment in American history right now. It's sort of hard to believe that we're recording this right now. It does feel like a pretty weighty moment to me, as I'm sure it does to you. I think that's what you basically just said. So there's there's a lot to talk about tonight. Um, the planned uh, topic we still want to uh, definitely lead with, and, and we'll also talk about um, the protests and riots that are going on after the murder of George Floyd. So uh, with that, why don't you introduce, who is our secret special guest tonight? I want to introduce to you my life partner, Carol. Uh, and I will speak to her about her in a, for a minute or two and her background that gives her the ability to do what she's doing. Excellent. Welcome, Carol. Well, thank you. Pleasure to be here with you. It's quite a treat. Yeah. I I think that empathy begins in the home, and despite all the people who are out on the streets today and and over the last few days and the last few weeks, that empathy is, you know, if you don't have it at home, how can you take it out on the streets with you? And uh, to a million of house house codes, it's it's that key, that, that that empathy, that, and, and more and more, it's sheltering in to avoid coronavirus. Uh, my wife is, and I have been married for 54 years and counting, so we have a little experience of being with each other. Um, Just a little. Well, more than a little, I guess. Fortunately <laughs> for both of us, she's a registered nurse and well-trained in medical cleanliness, and the unique distance between individuals that we have to avoid in the epidemic's contagion. I think that uh, most of us are pretty much up to speed about the coronavirus, but I'm going to emphasize just a few things. Um, To begin with, what is this thing? Is it alive? Is it dead? Well, it's not really alive, though some people argue that it 
that it is. How does it, how does it uh, get to us? Well, it's infinitesimally small, maybe one one-hundredth the diameter of a human hair, and it's amazingly sticky. So when it gets onto something, it stays. It does not fluff off. That is n not comforting, is it? Uh, no, it's distressing. Yes, it is. And there's, it's, that is wreaking havoc. So I got to back up a second. You said it's kind of neither dead nor alive. And I, I remember basically hearing that maybe in high school biology and being pretty disturbed by that. Can you say, what, what does that mean that it's not really dead, but it's not really alive? Well, it has RNA, but it doesn't have DNA. So it can reproduce itself, but that's about the end of it. So, and it reproduces itself at, a, at an amazing accelerated rate. So it's just a piece of RNA that keeps duplicating itself. Yes, that's right. Uh, and it's a piece of RNA. Um, it's a protein with a fat wrapped around it. And we've all seen the pictures of its many portals that it uh, uses to find an entry to a human cell where it can take over and do its reproducing. Mm. I think we need to explain what an RNA is. You do, I don't. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know who you're looking at on that one. It's not going to be me. Carol, uh, I'm hoping you can uh, shed some light on that. What is RNA and DNA? Well, RNA is ribonucleic acid. So it's a strand of protein. And uh, DNA is the substance that allows us to transmit our characteristics to our offspring and within our own body. So that's a, a, quick, a, quick, uh, a quick lesson in virology. Okay. And it's, I believe it's the case, to correct me if I'm wrong, RNA in evolutionary terms, came first. And you know, organisms that uh, have higher functioning all have DNA, but something that only has RNA is going to be a very primitive basic organism. Well done. Okay, That's all right. right. Do I get an A? You got an A. Excellent. <laughs> so, I think, so I think it's up to Carol to tell us some of the things that you have to do when you shelter in. Yes, that was you, you did my lead in for me. Thank you. Go ahead, Carol. What do you do when you're sheltering? Well, the virus is, is transmitted mainly in droplets coming from people's mouths, nose, and lungs. So the basic principle is to avoid someone else's breath and the droplets that accompany it from getting on you or on anything else. And it's, it's good to bear that in mind um, when thinking about what we have to do. Why are we sheltering in place? Why are we all stuck inside with our doors barred? Well, it's to keep us apart from anybody else. Why do we wear a face mask? Well, it's to protect other people from our droplets. And we hope that others will do the same. Similarly, washing our hands. Why are we doing that? We're doing that because if we touch something where the droplets have fallen, 
then we are likely to transmit them to ourselves when we put our hands near our mouth, near our nose, near our eyes. And so by washing our hands for 20 seconds, we eliminate the virus. And those are the basic principles. Okay, and I believe you just revealed the reason why masks are highly recommended in many or maybe even most circumstances. Can you touch on those for us? Yes. When we are with people with whom we live and we're sheltered in, we're not afraid of their droplets because we can assume if we're not going out without protection that that they are safe. Once we're outside, we literally do not know who has the virus in their system and who is therefore capable of transmitting it and who does not because somewhere near 50% of, of us, if we have the virus, don't have symptoms. So we are transmitters who may be positive and not sick. And some of us, some of that 50%, are super transmitters who have such intense viral loads that they can easily contaminate many, many people and, and not know it. Hmm. Right, and that is uh, one of the main um, dangers of the virus is that you may, may not show any symptoms. You might be asymptomatic, you don't know that you have it, nobody else knows that you have it, and you could go around and say, well, I, I feel fine, and uh, so I can go visit whoever I want, but you might be carrying it around and spreading it to all of them. Exactly, exactly so. And the key, the key to sheltering in and what we're doing is listening and then doing something about it. And I give an example that Carol told me that I have to wash my hands 20 for 20 minutes. And seconds. 20 seconds, I'm sorry. <laughs> we got to get that straight. And that um, I listened to that very carefully and I do it. But what I didn't pick up was that she said, after you get done, your hands are pretty brittle. You should use some lotion on them. And I didn't do that and my hands got brittle. So I, I started listening more carefully to what she has to say. <laughs> a good lesson for all of us. Uh, you know, though, Ken, and you touch on uh, empathy again here, which, of course, is our theme. But um, it does strike me how many times, I'll have to admit, I come in the door from, you know, grabbing the groceries downstairs. By the way, we've been, I think, uh, exclusively, we've been getting groceries delivered um, since probably March and, uh, but, but, you know, we bring those up and we have our rituals. I'm going to ask you about yours here in a second, but, um, there'll be times where I feel like, oh, do I really have to wash my hands for 20 seconds again? It's like such a pain. And, and then I'm, uh, I, that's where putting myself in someone else's shoes does actually make a difference because I have to think to myself, well, what if I do have something and then I get sick and then I spread it to my family and we spread it to neighbors like you and uh, all because I just didn't want to wash my hands for 20 seconds. So um, I don't like that I have those thoughts, but, uh, you know, it does help to think how am I going to affect other people? I think all of us do. All of us struggle with, with, those, with those thoughts and um, with lapses where you just 
we'll touch something that, you know, afterwards, oops, I put the gas in my car and I grab that handle that people have been touching all day, and now I'm in trouble. Mm -hmm. But you can mitigate it, keep your hand away from your face, maybe have a little disinfectant in the car, and use it. Yes. Uh, the, uh, so let me bring it back to what I just touched on earlier on groceries delivery. So what, what, how are you all getting along with just the two of you, uh, living in your house for, it's, you know, been several months now. How have you been getting along with normal day-to-day living and eating and so on? It's a, I think it's been a learning curve and it's been a learning curve for me. And it's been even a more intense learning curve for Kenan because he has not had training in aseptic technique, which is the way medical doctors and nurses prevent patients from contracting infection from themselves or from other patients. Yeah, it's, um, it's a struggle. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I, I think most of the population has gone through this. Why do I have to um, be careful with the groceries that I bring in? Why can't I just take them out, put them away? What do you do with the groceries? Uh, yeah, great, great follow-up. I was going to ask that too, Kenan. <laughs> the groceries, they're probably, you know, I mean, we have to assume that uh, they could be contagious, right? Well, um, it may be the groceries themselves, such as produce, for example. Uh, It may be the container that they're in. For example, we know that um, we're told by the scientists that the coronavirus can live on plastic and hard surfaces like metal for up to three days and on cardboard for a couple of days, maybe. So... That means that we have to treat them with respect. Mm-hmm. Um, some people do that by just putting them in an out-of-the-way place, a garage or a corner of their apartment that doesn't get a lot of traffic and let them sit there for two to three days. Now, you can't do that with your milk and eggs, so what, what are you going to do there? And one thing you can do is take them out, Put them in the sink. Put the put the bags and the that you the shopping bags that you um, remove them from also out of the way where they can sit and literally wash them. And I think a good rule of thumb. It's not fun, but 20 seconds on an avocado is going to get rid of the uh, coronavirus, and you can put it in your wherever you keep your um, produce, and you should be, you should be okay. The, the avocado is a good example because people come to squeeze it and see if it's you know, ripe or not, and so you have to be especially careful with avocados. We had a friend who told us this story that probably a lot of us can identify with. Oh, she said, I always wear gloves when I go shopping, except when I squeeze the avocados. Oh, <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. And this is a very thoughtful 
conscientious person. Yeah, it, yeah. This stuff is hard. This is not easy. Old habits die hard, right? It's, <laughs> it, we're we're used to living a certain way, and it's you know things that we did mindlessly and easily. We now have to retrain ourselves to to do a different way, and that's that's hard. It is hard, and I think that um, on a whole other topic that you touched on in the beginning, it's like consciousness raising and training our minds to be aware of things that we've been not noticing, though they were in front of us, with regard to our brothers and sisters of color. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, we're we're going to... dive into that headlong here shortly I, I just have a couple other questions for you before we uh we do that on the on the topic of um the coronavirus and and the two of you sheltering in um and th- and that is i just want to have you talk a little bit about if it's not too personal how how has this affected you mentally and emotionally to be um dealing with this virus, doing all the things that we just discussed to try to be clean and, and free of the, of the virus. How does that affect you mentally and emotionally in, in being with each other uh, almost exclusively for so long? Well, it's gotten better over time. So that's the good news. The bad news is I can become very irritated if something isn't done the way I think it should be done. And my standards are very high. I'm using hospital standards. Or I'm using, um, that's not really fair to say, I'm using strict standards that come out of the Center for Disease Control that have been repeated over and over again, which are consistent with hospital standards. But Kenan does not come from that background or their experience. So there's tension and I imagine that's true in a lot of households. Where, mm-hmm. Why did you do that? You forgot to you forgot to put a mask on. Don't take your mask off that way, and the like. Yes, we have definitely had similar kinds of discussions, to put it kindly. <laughs> one, one of the things that helps is that we're not only together. We make calls and we get calls during the day, and that's really big. And I. I kind of go over my list of phone numbers and just make sure if I haven't called somebody in a couple of days, especially if they're all by themselves, then I do try to keep in touch. And I think a lot of people do it to us, and our children do it to us. Mm-hmm. And uh, my, all of my children have figured out a way and, and, and do this, to play cribbage on the Internet. Uh, and uh, it's, it's a very good, kind act of... Uh, kind act for for an, such an elderly fellow as me that is very cool you know i i uh, talked with uh, your son ben um uh, i don't know two or three weeks ago now and he he told me about your cribbage games and it's one of those games i've been curious about so i looked it up and that's a complicated game well my father and i used to play it when you know 70 some years ago 75 years ago and we would play for a quarter game and he would play three games. He would win two of them. And then I would, what they do call it, I skunk him the third game. So we never exchanged any money. <laughs> well I've, done. Well done. I've heard it called a game that takes a half hour to learn and a lifetime to master. Well, I, 
I, I couldn't get through the half hour. I, I was reading <laughs> the rules and I was just like, what? There's so many there's points for this, but okay. So, Kenan, if, uh, maybe we'll have to do a podcast where you do nothing but teach me cribbage. <laughs> there you go. I would say that my son, Ben, should be doing that. I think he's beat me more often than I've beat him. <laughs> ah, and you had a lifetime of learning ahead of you. So the, the student is uh, over, overtaking the teacher, huh? Yes. Well, that happens to all of us. Don't worry about it. My son just turned 21 during this pandemic, and, uh, you know, he's better at me, better than me at plenty of things at this point. So don't feel bad. So one of the other th milestones in this, well, I hate to call it a milestone, but uh, uh, just about 10 days ago now, I think it was a week ago Monday, um, that uh, an officer in Minneapolis dragged uh, a handcuffed um, George um, Floyd out of a police car uh, and put him on the ground, put his knee on his neck for eight think eight minutes and 40 some seconds they've said now until until he died he murdered him and the the country and not just the country i mean it first of course it started in minneapolis and then uh demonstrations spread to the entire country and now it's in countries around the world um for a lot of reasons i believe probably first and foremost in solidarity with um the plight of blacks in America who've been oppressed for over 400 years here now. Um, we didn't prepare for this. So we're really this, we're just kind of off the cuff here. How has this affected the two of you? You of course have a lot more personal history with the civil rights movement. And, and Carol, I want you to touch on some of your work as a, uh, as a lawyer and, and the clients you represented. Um, how have the two of you, seen these events of the last 10 days? Um, with the sense of horror, um, uh, a recognition that what that officer did, he did in broad daylight with cameras, uh, video running, with people around him, and with impunity. So that, in a way, it reflected the, the outer limits of what has been allowed and tolerated by our society, as you said, for 400 years. These are basically the vestiges of slavery. Mm -hmm. That's what it is. My work, um, I, I'm an attorney, and I represented people on death row for two decades in several different states, most of whom were African-American, although African-Americans make up a minority of our population, they make up a disproportionate number of people on, on death row. And if a black person is to kill a white person, the chances of them uh, be, being charged with uh, a death penalty are far greater, off the charts greater, than if a white person kills a black person or a black person kills a black person. It's mm -hmm. uh, time to change things starting with George Floyd 
and the abuses of the criminal justice system, uh, particularly policing on the street. Yeah. I think that that's just a perfect, perfect crossroad and a perfect place. I think that the demonstrations are more than justified. Yes. I I wholeheartedly agree. Kenan, um, what is your, why don't you just speak a little bit about what you've seen and your, your thoughts uh, as these events have transpired? Well, in the 1960s, I participated in demonstrations. And there's one thing that just stands out to me with fury. And that is that the four policemen were carrying a guy off. One had each arm and one had each foot, each leg, another each leg. And they were hitting him over the head with a belly club as they moved out away from, my, from the rest of us. And uh, there was nothing I could do about it. And I, I'm, I found out that becoming involved in the civil rights movement was something I could more and more do something about. And I have. And uh, it's been very meaningful to me. But, you know, it's, uh, it's not the same as somebody who has, was being hit over the head with a belly club. And I always have to remember that. Yeah, well, that's pretty powerful stuff to have, you know, witnessed that and in a sense been a part of it firsthand. Um, I I think one of the things I've I've pondered about the last week or so is whether this situation isn't similar. It's it, it's an institutional problem, and um, we've seen this recently with. Uh, the church, the Catholic Church in particular, um, protecting sexual predators and basically, you know, having a scheme where they moved uh, priests who were uh, charged with uh, being pedophiles and abusing kids. They moved them around to, to hide them and, and the, the law protected them and the church protected them and Maybe we have a similar problem where police forces are guilty of being a great place to hide if you're um, a violent racist. I don't know if that's true or not, but I'm curious to see if the what you two think about that. Well, I it, it makes me think that uh, one of the recommendations about reforming police treatment of um, uh, people of color, is that police ought to be certified the way that uh, other practitioners are certified. And that means a um, all of the means that would be available to tease out the possibility that those are the kind of people that police forces are hiring yep. or keeping and retaining and promoting and promoting and promoting. Yes. Yeah, we ought to be able to know. I mean, we have so many tools. I know when uh, in corporate America, there are tests that have been out there for years to do psychological profiles of people to make sure they're a good fit for the company, um, you know, in a, in a number of different areas. There's, there has to be something we can do to, to vet people better before they're uh, trained to be the protector's and enforce the enforcers of the law when, in fact, they're perpetrating the worst kinds of violence out there. Um, President Obama commissioned it, a task force to look into 
police abuses. And before he left office, a um, uh, compiled the uh, commission compiled a recommendation of ways to better police departments. And if I'm not mistaken, what we're talking about is one of those recommendations, but there are others that are well thought out and s seriously grounded. That's a good point. There's uh, already a, a lot of people have, uh, it's, it's not like this is a new uh, problem or that it's the first time people are looking at it. So um, that's something we could all do is learn about that better. And, uh, you know, I've, I've heard others say uh, one of the things we can do is look at, um, in some areas, the district attorneys are voted in, and it depends on where you live. But if that's the case where you are, that's something you can take care of at the voting booth in many cases. So, um, you know, if you don't like what's going on nationally, um, well, it, it, I guess what I'm what I'm really trying to say is it's easy to look at problems as things that, you know, involve electing a president or maybe a senator, but there are so many elected positions at the local level that have uh, far greater impact on some issues that are hit closer to home, such as this. One of the things true. That, yeah. One of the things that you we can do is as our parents or grandparents that we can share our experiences and listen to them. Uh, both Carol and I separately talked to our youngest grandson because he lives in in Minnesota, not far from Minneapolis. And um, I did a little more talking and she did a little more listening and I think she was more right than I was. <laughs> there is so much more that we could say about this. I, I want to keep going, but uh, we're getting close to the end of our time. One last topic I wanted to bring up, uh, since we are three white people talking about this, I think it's important to begin noting that, that, you know, we don't have a voice on this podcast, at least today, uh, speaking from the perspective of um, a black person in America. So, but one of the things that uh, my wife and I have been reading and hearing from others is that we, we can begin to uh, educate ourselves on the perspective, that other perspective. Um, and a concept that I, that is kind of quite frankly, pretty new to me is white fragility. So I've heard white privilege for many years. Um, but white fragility begins to speak about how uncomfortable talking about it is. And, and I, I gotta be honest, I mean, just even beginning to say the words white fragility to you now on this podcast is uncomfortable to me. And uh, I have to ask myself, why? Why is that? And, and, and what can I do to, to change that? And, and so obviously we're not going to do that all right now and unpack that, but that might be a topic. Uh, obviously, there's a lot regarding empathy that could be said um, along those lines. So, Kenan, what do you think? Maybe that's something we'll have to bring up I, in the future. I want to know, I want you to define white fragility. Uh, well, it's basically why it's so hard for us to talk about racism. It makes us feel bad. Uh, we don't like the topic of racism as white people because it makes us feel guilty. And especially if we feel we're not racists, we're not bigots, we have friends who are uh, black people, we have um, you know, friends who are ethnic minorities um, uh, of all kinds of colors. So uh, 
that means that, you know, we shouldn't have to talk about it. It doesn't apply to us. When in fact, we, by not talking about it, we're actually helping support the institutional problems that are supporting the oppression. And none of us like that. I don't like it. Uh, I should start with me. I don't like it. But um, starting to get that um, that's besides the point. I need to talk about it anyway and um, figure out um, what I can do besides talking about it. And I know, Ken, and you've, you've done a lot over the years of, to tell the story of uh, low-income people. And often those are people of color, and there's all, all kinds of reasons why. But um, maybe... We'll just end by having you tell us one of those stories. Can you give us briefly one of the stories of talking to uh, people on the streets in your days with the Tribune? Uh, well, I, I've written a couple books. One is entitled They Speak for Themselves, Interviews with the Destitute of Chicago. And another one is a book of the poor. And uh, you can buy that book. I don't get any, I don't get any, what do you call it there? Royalties. Royalties from the book because the person who published it died right after he published it, and I didn't get. But they still have the books out there. So, uh, and I, uh, I really think that a, a good part of it is just listening to people who telling about their lives. And uh, I think that if we don't have people like that, we can at least we can look it up and, and find it out. And I wanted, I wanted to share it in different ways with, with. Uh, my writing. Very good. Well, let's end it there. Thank you both for your time and uh, being so vulnerable and personal about uh, your experiences in uh, uh, sheltering in during the coronavirus and uh, appreciate your your candor in talking about uh, the civil rights issues we face here. So, pleasure talking to you both and uh, Thank you all for listening, and uh, we'll see you again uh, next time. Right on. 